0: hey everyone uh this is a, a couple of episodes from um actually the patreon they're a little bit older this is uh my way of sort of uh, letting everyone into the reboot of the capital reading group um just figured at the end of the pandemic or the middle of the pandemic or wherever we are uh it, it kind of felt good to do something a little more ambitious uh and uh, lengthy uh and people have been asking for this to come back for a while and if deadspin can do it then so can i um uh, these are t- the first two episodes'll we'll be releasing more i think there are five or six in total that i recorded before um the new ones will be on patreon uh they'll be five dollars a month to get at patreon.com hegelbun but also i'm happy to work out deals if like you know you're running like a chapter or a class or something and you want some sort of primer on capital that isn't uh the typical harvey or um etc although the harvey is quite good um anyway i uh, hope you enjoy and uh thank you so much for listening Kegelbahn on Twitter, and this is the first of a series that I hope we can uh, make quite a uh, tradition out of. This is the first of our reading group series, where I'm going to be going through uh, some of the the major works of left thinking. Um, you know, not necessarily uh, all the canonical ones or anything like that. There's no programmatic uh, structure to this, but I am starting with Capital, and we're going to work our way through Capital, which is a sort of my version of the David Harvey uh, gambit. Um, just a couple of things off the bat, though. Uh, this podcast is going to cost $1. I'm going to give it to $1 subscribers. Uh, if you are a $1 subscriber on the Patreon, you can have this uh, this podcast. Uh, you will be able to hear it. The um, The way that this will work out for other people, because, of course, it is a leftist podcast and I don't want to uh, necessarily put up a huge price block, although it's a lot of work, so having some sort of a, a recompense is nice. Um but I don't want to make it so it's prohibitive. Uh, so if you have to beg, borrow, steal, pirate, whatever, uh, I'm not going to hold it against you. Uh, it's okay. This is something that I want to be doing. It's something that I think will be really popular, but also something that um, you know, I very much want to have available to people. The other thing that's uh, important to understand about this, so uh, one of the big... Critiques of education, such as it is, is that it is expensive and elitist. Uh, It doesn't allow for any sort of like um, easy access in, right? And uh, you can even argue that if we sort of went to a public, uh, a public sort of university system, the problem would be, of course, that you are only assuming that a certain class of student could get into uh, really really high level leftist thinking uh you know maybe the people aren't super good at taking tests who want to do high level leftist thinking but that makes their grades seem too low or maybe um people just don't respond well to a classroom there's a whole uh, uh dialogue about ableism and uh and the sort of like limits of the modern classroom there to to be delved into and i mean just ultimately some people aren't college people some people aren't school people and that doesn't mean that they have any less of a say in left discourse so I get all those critiques for sure um, I'm coming from an academic perspective though this is definitely where I learned Marx I learned it in the academy under Nicholas Brown um, over at UIC University of Illinois Chicago um, one of you know in my for my money one of the best Marxist English departments in the country if not the best um, so it's 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 coming from an academic perspective I want to add these caveats though. Uh, By no means am I sort of suggesting that my, I'm not suggesting any sort of programmatic or didactic quality to these podcasts. Um, If they help you learn capital, great. If they're sort of interesting for you, great. Uh, Don't take me as gospel though. I will, you know, you're hearing my reading and I certainly stand by my reading. This is gospel if you're sort of writing up a canonical account of my leftism. Um, But what I think is more helpful in sort of this idea of a left reading group is the occasion to demystify these texts and open them up for conversation. Um, My major position uh, for quite a while has been that capital's not all that hard. Now, this is sort of a yes, but uh, scenario, it's hard enough, right? It's difficult in its own way. Um, It'll take us a while to get through. And we're not even gonna, we're gonna basically do like one sentence tonight, but that's all in the plan. Um, But... I think Capital is – Capital is very difficult for the first, let's say, book or so. Uh, And there are several books in – I think like six or seven, eight books in uh, Capital Volume 1. I could be totally wrong on that. Uh, It's not really important how many books there are in it. Uh, But – As Marx discusses the use uh, value, the exchange value of commodities, the money form, um, and ultimately gets to exploitation and uh, dead labor and the basic premises of the labor uh, theory of value, which maybe we can, uh, we might even be able to get an economist on to sort of guest and and talk about that a little bit, because I think that's fascinating. Um, And I don't have all of the um, capacities to talk about whether or not the labor theory of value works or doesn't work or or whatever one might think. Um, But... Through that beginning section, Marx is quite complicated, and it is the beginning section. Now, the reason Marx is complicated is because he's drawing from Hegel. Um, I'm going to bring Hegel in. Now, some people don't care about Hegel. Some people don't want to read Hegel in in Capital, and I have no problem with that. Um, Some people argue that Marx himself wants a split from Hegel in that he says he is turning Hegel on his head. Um, in, in, in putting materialism first, as opposed to idealism, uh, my reading of Marx is that he is not necessarily getting rid of Hegel and by any means that he is using his own Hegelianism to resituate the thinker in its his own sort of dialectic method. Um, why am I telling you all this? Well, it's to give you a sense of what the premise of this whole system will be of, of analysis, of uh, discussion vis-a-vis capital. It's also to kind of put everything out on the table. I'm going to approach this from a Galian perspective. I'm going to approach this from an academic perspective. Um, I welcome questions on Twitter, at Hegelbon. Um, you can email the No Cartridge account, Audio at gmail.com. Uh you can tweet the uh the um actual podcast account at no cartridge. Uh I don't run it, but uh the the intern will let me know. Um you can call me if you want, if you can find my number or whatever. Um but uh you can email me personally, uh at Trevor.strunk at gmail.com. Uh I'm happy to take questions and I'm happy to direct this in different ways if people have questions about the text and have questions about the ways that I'm reading it. I am not offended by challenges. I'm not Put off by challenges. I think it's good. I think it's good if you want to say, "Hey, look, like I think capital should be read X way, or I think capital should be read in this way or that way or whatever." Um, or why aren't you covering this or why aren't you covering that? Or what is the sense of, uh, what you're talking about in terms of like real on the ground politics today? Or, you know, do you think the, the DSA is doing Marxism or the PSL is doing Marxism? Like, these are all questions I'm happy to answer and happy to engage with as best I can. Um, so email me, let me know. I, I can't answer these questions unless you tell me, cause we're not in a classroom. I can't, you know, read your face to see if you're being quizzical or anything like that, but I welcome the questions. I'm not coming into this from a paternalistic point of view. Obviously I'm doing the podcast. So in a sense it is paternalistic. I am like the big voice at the front of the room, (laughs) but, uh, I do not intend to make you feel as if you can't ask me questions or can't uh, challenge my readings or anything like that. One of the things that the Academy uh, should do is emphasize that no one's reading is the reading. Um, It rarely does this and part of that is just because of the dog-eat-dog style of academic discourse but um in that way you have a a good teacher in me or a good interlocutor in me because i am well outside of the uh, various success protocols of the academy i am um firmly in the class of uh you know adjuncts and, uh, and the walking dead of the profession. Uh, you know, if someone scoops me up at some point, uh, I will of course change uh, my tune, but you know, I publish, I get stuff out there. Uh, You know, I'll, I'll, I I do this academic podcast, uh, in, in all of its various forms, but I'm not, you know, a star in the profession. No one is saying they're going to use the Strunkian reading of, of Marx. I'm just like you in this regard. I have my own reading, though, and I think it's important to treat this text as a living text that needs to be interpreted. Uh, And so, you know, I don't have any stake in you challenging me or like responding negatively to a challenge. I welcome it because it is interesting to me. I am interested in this as someone who finds the politics necessary and important and someone who um, has engaged with it as both an enthusiast and a professional. So... That's the that's the preface to all of this. Let me get to the one thing I wanted to cover today. So I said that Marx was Hegelian uh, in his thinking, and the first sentence, I'm not going to do any of the prefaces or anything like that, which is a shame in some ways, because that's where Marx talks about turning Hegel on his head. But also, you know, you want to get to the meat of this stuff. We'd be here for weeks if I was doing the introduction by Mandel and the prefaces and stuff. Um, so... I'm also pulling from the Penguin edition of uh, Capital. If you'd like to follow along, by it for any reason, although if you'd also like to follow along, a, a similar translation is available for free on Marxist.org. I like this edition of the Penguin. Um, I'm sort of a, a, a luddite. I like. I can't read long things on on screens, uh, but I do appreciate that all of Marxist.org has this stuff up for free. Um, it's translated by Ben Folks, who think I think does a good job, and it's introduced by Ernest Mandel, who's like. A very good thinker, uh, particularly of the economics of Marx. Um, I encourage you to read his introduction and read his work. Uh it's very interesting. Um, but I'm just jumping right in. I think I think it's important. So this starts on page uh 125 of uh the the Faust translation. And I think what I'm gonna do in most of these um Sessions is go through uh, a chapter every time. So I'm starting with uh, chapter one, the commodity, but I'm only doing a little bit of it. Uh, For next time, uh, we'll do about fifty or so pages. Uh, That'll be next week. But for this one, for this intro one, since a lot of it is me sort of setting up stuff at the top, I wanted to give you a sense of of where I was coming from. So the first chapter, uh, the first chapter of Marx's first book is called the commodity. Uh, So the first book is called. I can do it all. It's Capital Volume 1, Part 1, Commodities and Money, Chapter 1, The Commodity. What you're going to find, uh, so they're not books, they're parts, but what are you going to find in uh, in Capital is that Marx approaches his subject in a very, um, well, I don't approach it programmatically, but he certainly does. Uh, there are all sorts of stories about you know various robber barons having uh, editions of Capital that have some sort of massive uh, line editing and like, you know things underlined and 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 paginations all uh, all written down in the back and and dog eared pages and stuff. And I don't know if that's apocryphal or not, but it could be true insofar as if you wanted to use capital as a way to better understand how to be a good capitalist or a more ruthless capitalist, you could. It is truly a book about how capitalism works. Um, that is the genius of it. In some ways, it's a follow-up and and sort of a, a kindred spirit to Adam Smith, um, and and sort of like his work in in much more frankly capitalist um, economics. Marx is essentially just taking Adam Smith and doing something more with him, uh, as we shall see. Uh, you know, Adam Smith basically uh, assumes that labor has a particular value, um, and al- as Louis Althusser later points out all Marx really does to make his sort of like, as like the starting point for his analysis, which, you know, I unabashedly think is brilliant, um, <clears throat> is to say, yeah, okay, labor has value. Why? And where does the value come from? It's not innate. Where does it come from? And that's the core of capital. So it's not as if this book is especially anti-capitalist, unless you are someone who finds the exploitation and the underpayment and the sort of human crimes that are endemic to capitalism um, an argument against it. If you're Robert baron, I'm sure you just see it as like a feature, not a bug, right? Um, but as uh, sympathetic leftists and Marxists all, um, we can of course see why this would be a critique uh, as well as a, uh, a sort of programmatic analysis. Um, but as a programmatic analysis, Marx starts off uh, at the beginning, right? In this idea of, okay, so like what is the commodity. What is a commodity? Uh, We talk about commodities all the time. People will say like a widget factory or like, you know, a commodity can be a lot of things these days. It can be my time. It can be this podcast. It can be a creative work of art. It could be a a desk. It could be, I'm looking just around me at this point. It could be a computer. It could be a water bottle. It could be a globe. uh, It could be a house. It could be a dog. Anything can be a commodity if it's for sale in the market, right? But what exactly is a commodity? Marx breaks this down over this chapter. We're not going to get any good answers this time around, but we're starting off in a good place. What's a commodity? Well, Marx would say, we have to go back to the beginning to a barter society where we just have people trading stuff for stuff. I have seven chickens. You have this hat I want. Let's, switch, let's swap. Right. Um, we'll get there. We'll get to the idea of the marketplace. But first, this beginning sentence. So this section in chapter one, the first section of chapter one is called the two factors of the commodity, use value and value, substance of value, magnitude of value. So we're talking about use value and value and that second term value. So use value is easy. As we'll see, it's just what a thing does, right? Like what are you getting out of it? I give you a shovel. Use value of a shovel is, hey, look, I can dig a hole, right? The other value, right? Like we understand, um, I guess like innately what that is. We understand that essentially that version of value is something like, you know, what, what. What, do, what is this worth to me? What is this worth to anyone? Um, and Marx at this beginning kind of beginning stage kind of coyly just calls it value um, to give away the game a little bit. Um, it'll eventually become exchange value, which is important to understand in the marketplace. Now, um, when he talks about value, then he's talking about the substance of value, which is what is it and the magnitude of value. That is how much value does each thing have? It's as simple as that. It sounds complicated, but basically he's saying, hey, commodities have use value and value which later will become exchange value. What is basically the point of this value? Where does it come from and how much is it for any given commodity? Okay, so he starts off in this sentence. The wealth of societies in which the capitalist mode of production prevails, which would at this, in these days be every society, it's sort of like a, uh, a total subsumption under capital. I suppose you could make an argument for the DPRK or Venezuela or um, China, um, although, uh, you know, that's, that's probably outside of the scope of this particular episode, but I'm happy to do it if you want me to do it later. Um, in any case, the wealth of societies in which the capitalist mode of production prevails appears as an, quote, Immense collection of commodities, which is to say, you know, the the wealth of these societies are just a bunch of things. Things operate as wealth. True, absolutely. Um, until we get to financialization, which we'll get to. The individual commodity appears as its elementary form. Our investigation therefore begins with the analysis of the commodity. Now, I've already said all this. You know that our investigation begins with the analysis of the commodity. But let me say just off the top here this appears right this term appears now i'm using the english translation i'm not going to be necessarily going into all the german but appears is a really important term here Later on, Marx will use the phrase form of appearance, um, which is to say the the thing that appears in the world. Money, for instance, the, the, the sort of floating signifier uh, that allows us to have exchange. He says the form of appearance of money is gold or paper bills or fiat currency or Bitcoin or whatever you want, right? Um, he doesn't say Bitcoin. He's not that far flung. Um, but uh, this level of appear, right? The wealth appears as an immense collection of commodities and the commodity appears as the elementary form of wealth. Okay. You might just take that in stride. You might say appear. Okay. It looks like it. Take this uh, seriously in terms of a Hegelian term, however, and you get the beginning of the deep dialectical quality of Marx. So you start off in, um, uh, this is from, um, this is actually on Marxist.org. Um, the, the, address is marxist.org backslash uh, i'm sorry just slash people get angry with me about that slash reference slash archive slash hegel slash works slash sl slash sl appear dot htm so this is from the encyclopedia of philosophical sciences it's the logic i'm not sure who the the translator is these things are always kind of a little strange on marxist.org but it's free too so very good This is the second subdivision of part one of the Encyclopedia of the Philosophical Sciences, and this is on essence, and this is the second section in essence on appearance. Now, Hegel talks about essence, and he says, the essence must appear or shine forth. He's talking about things here. He's talking about objects in the world, like a tree or, again, a computer, anything in the world. It doesn't have to be a commodity at this point. We're outside of the world of exchange. We're outside of the world of commodity and capitalism. This is just like stuff. Hegel isn't all that interested in exchange and capitalism. He's interested in things, right? Just like Kant is interested in things um, and art and stuff as things, aesthetic things. Um, so get – get so, sort of extract yourself from the, the politics of exchange for just a second and imagine just things in the world. Like we're, we're put in a square and we see a chair in front of us, that most platonic of things, a chair. Um, and okay, so we see the chair and the chair has an essence and it must appear to us, right? We must see it and uh, note its chairness. Um, it's shining a reflection in it is the suspension and translation of it to immediacy. So, okay, it is immediate in front of us. The chair is there in the same room as us. The only way we can feel its chairness is if it is, if it is immediately a chair to us. It appears and seems in its essence as a chair. This immediacy, which while as reflection into itself is a matter of subsistence, which is to say, if the chair reflects upon itself in its own chairness, that just makes it a chair. This is the tree falls in the woods question. If a tree falls in the woods, it's a fallen tree to itself, certainly, but it's also form. It's only the form of a fallen tree if it is a reflection on something else, which is to say an observer or its surroundings, a subsistence which sets itself, that is the chair, aside so to show or shine is the characteristic by which essence is distinguished from being by which it is essence so if that basic subsistence is being the chair is a chair it it it, it, it it's being is a chair regardless of observer once an observer or once a context for the chair comes in the isness of the chair is shared with a, uh, a, a, as Hegel says, a reflection on something else, it's context, it's observer, and it becomes something different, it becomes essence. And it is this show, which is to say the show of essence, which when it is developed shows itself and is appearance. So if essence is the mixture of being, that is the central subsistence of chair, the isness of chair, so to speak, um, the other arm of being, or the other arm of essence, excuse me, is appearance uh, the um, the setting itself uh, aside in terms of subsistence and uh, being a reflection on something else that is appearance? When I see a chair, it appears to me as a chair. It shows forth, it shines forth. Right? Essence, accordingly, is not something beyond or behind appearance, but just as just because it is the essence which exists, the existence is appearance, or a, a more direct translation, forth shining. So. What Hegel is saying is that the essence of a thing is, dialectically speaking, also its appearance. We see the thing in the world. We say, great, there's the thing. I see it. I understand it in its context. A chair is, it exists, because it appears to me, the observer. And he goes out of his way to say, like, yeah, appearance is, like, better. Um, in fact, like, we, you could say, like, you could say it's an important got grade of the uh, logical idea, he adds. Um... He says that like the significance of the appearance has to be properly grasped, or mistakes will arise. He says to say that anything is mere appearance may be misinterpreted to mean that as compared to what is merely phenomenal, that is, isness. there is greater truth in the immediate, in that which is. Um, oh, excuse me. Uh, I got that wrong. I'll keep my mistakes in, just so you know that I get stuff wrong too. To say that anything is mere appearance may be misinterpreted to mean that, as compared to what is merely phenomenal, the phenomena are the phenomenology of the thing being what appears to you in the world what phenomena appears to you via your senses in the world um uh there is greater truth in the immediate in that which is so i see the chair but the chair's isness the the chairness of the chair that only it knows is more important hegel says no 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 in strict fact the that case is precisely the reverse, sort of setting himself up as a as against Kant in, in, in this way. Um, what Kant would argue here is that appearance relates in the way that uh, we can't actually touch the thing. We can't understand the isness, the chairness of the thing. That is um, what he would call a noumenon. Um, and this noumenous quality of it separates us from the chair. Uh, for Hegel, the appearance is super important. Appearance is higher than mere being he says a richer category because it holds in combination the two elements of reflection into self and reflection into other. As we said, the isness of the chair, the chairness of the chair, and the context of the chair that lets me know it's a chair. Whereas being or immediacy is still mere relationlessness and apparently rests upon itself alone. Okay, right. So the chair only knows the chair. Appearance, I know the chair too. And the chair knows itself. Still, he adds, to say that anything is only an appearance suggests a real flaw, which consists in this, that appearance is still divided against itself, and without intrinsic stability, okay, that's true, because of course, you see a chair and I see a chair, and we might describe something different. Ferdinand de Saussure uh, calls this sort of the arbitrariness of the sign, insofar as I can say chair, and maybe what you're picturing is a wooden chair, but what I'm picturing is a rolling desk chair, which is what I'm sitting in. Um, these are both chairs; they both have chairness to them, but their appearance would be different. So the appearance lacks a sort of internal stability. Um, and it says beyond and above mere appearance comes in the first place actuality, the third grade of essence of which we should act, which we will. I'm sorry, of which we shall afterwards speak. Now, we aren't going to get to actuality here because we aren't in actuality for uh, Marx yet. But to hint at the place that Hegel goes, to hint at the sort of dialectical conclusion at the end of this section, this is um, uh, subsection 141 the uh, same page, the empty abstractions by which, by means of which the one identical content, this is Hegel, perforce continues into two correlatives suspend themselves in the immediate transition, the one into the other. We're once again getting back to this point. Hegel is nothing if not repetitive. If you're intimidated by this or worried about reading Hegel ever, don't worry. He's pure repetition. He likes to repeat himself a lot. If you get the basic idea, just keep thinking, okay, he's talking about the basic idea. He's building on a theme. The content itself, nothing but their identity, which is to say the identity of the thing in itself, the chairness of the thing and the identity, which I give it by grasping its context. And these abstractions are the seeming of essence put as seeming. So the seeming of essence being the appearance, right? I see the thing, it seems to be essence and That seeming put as seeming, which is to say that appearance is also the chair's chairness. That's the marriage of the two, the dialectical marriage of the two. By the manifestation of force, the inward is put into existence, which is to say I see the chair. It appears to me and I say that chair has chairness which means I have put that into existence. By way of my externality, I have put the inward quality of the chair into existence. The the appearance of the thing has put the being of the thing into um, existence and created its essence. But this pudding is the mediation by empty abstractions. As we said before, this is going to be a lot different if you're imagining a wooden chair as opposed to a rolling chair. Those are two different kinds of chairnesses. In its own self, the intermediating process vanishes, vanishes to the immediacy in which the inward and the outward are absolutely identical and their, distinct, and their difference is distinctly no more than assumed and imposed. So in its own self, the intermediating process vanishes to the immediacy, which is to say all these questions of isness and chairness and the context and all this stuff, all the ways that these two dialectical things are, are contributing, once we realize that they're both empty abstractions, they immediately vanish And essence becomes this element of immediacy. What is the chair in itself in the moment? What is the form of appearance? Uh, That is to say, both the isness of the thing and my understanding of the thing, the form of appearance is this thing in the world. It's this thing immediately in the world. This is when the inward and the outward are absolutely identical and their difference is distinctly no more than assumed and imposed, which is our natural world. How often are you wondering about the chairness of a chair? until these last five minutes, probably never, never before. So this is everyday world. This is life, right? And this identity where you don't, where like you have basically held these two opposites in collaboration, you said the, the appearance of the thing and the being of the thing are opposites until, oh, Hey, they're both actually abstractions and they both rely on each other. And the inwardness is actually confirmed by the outwardness. The outwardness is confirmed by the inwardness. And in fact, they sort of just, end up looking the same, once they look the same and we understand that this is all mediated and modulated uh, by and, and sort of like resolved in terms of contradiction by this question of immediacy, then we get actuality, the identity of the thing, the thing in the world. So in this case, the form of appearance, that is to say the balance between appearance and being or that balance between the thing itself and the thing in society uh, you know, bluntly or vulgarly put, um, is not entirely different from the actuality of the thing itself, the thing in the world or the thing as it is, but the form of appearance of a thing is essentially prior to the moment we say, eh, you know what, like this actual thing and my understanding of this actual thing are effectively the same thing. They're both empty. Let's get at what the thing is and its immediacy. For Marx, the reason he uses appear here and not is or, you know, what it actually is, is that the commodity only appears as the form of wealth. The commodity looks like, oh, hey, you know, that person has a big TV. It appears to me, understanding the context of society, that they have wealth. And, you know, I can look at it and say the being of that TV is a TV uh, it costs $1,200. It is a, it is, it's isness is, you know, determined by its value there. Um, and in fact, uh, all these collections of commodities across the world tell me how rich everyone is. What does their car look like? What does their house look like? Right. The appearance of these things, such as I understand them, the essence of them is as markers of wealth. Right. But the commodity in its immediacy, its actuality, is a little harder to pin down than that, as we'll find out. And while Hegel turns to the ideality of a thing, what is it in the world? What is it in its immediacy? How can we get beyond its materiality? Marx turns to its materiality and says, no, 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 no. What you've done in the first place is you've done the idealism by talking about its appearance and its isness. Now let's get to what it actually is made of. What is the commodity made of? Is it made of these parts and widgets and these things that are sort of like apolitical? Or is wealth made from something else? And over the next few pages and next few weeks, we're going to find out that, in fact, the materiality of wealth is, for Marx, its actuality. And that actuality is much darker and much more complicated than we could possibly imagine from the outset. So... Thanks so much for tuning in. Um, Again, this is the Ben Falk's version of Capital Volume 1. I'm pulling Hegel from Marxist.org, and uh, it is his encyclopedia of philosophy, the logic, uh, particularly uh, part one of the philosophy, and then um, uh, section B appearance. and yeah, I'm really looking forward to doing this more with you. This is invigorating for me, and I hope it's invigorating for you. Tell your friends uh, $1, and please, you know, share and share, like, with comrades and, and others. You know, if you can toss money in, that would be wonderful. I, you know, I use it to to live. But um, I also want to – this is just like a, a passion project for me in some ways as well. <laughs> My name's Trevor Strunk, Hegelbond on Twitter, and I'm really happy to be here to talk more about Marx with you. The response we got for the first episode was fantastic. I absolutely am uh, blown away and cannot wait to talk more with you guys about this. I, I think I think it's like, the thing about Marx is it, it it's absolutely important stuff. Uh, it is not the most accessible stuff. So um, I'm happy to be doing this uh, so people might be able to enjoy the book with or, and, and follow the book and sort of like get something out of it without having to sit down and... Um, I don't know, slog through it, I guess. Uh, the one thing I'd say just in general is um, if you feel like you want to read along, that's totally fine. And actually, like I would encourage it. It's a, it's good to read with someone else, uh, basically. Uh, but you'll be able to get the podcast without the book too. If you just want to listen to the podcast and have this be sort of like a primer for capital... Um, that's okay too. Uh, just the, the, the relevant caveat supply, uh, you will only get my perspective on it. And, uh, there are many, many others out there. Anyway, I want to get right into it because there's a ton to talk about today. Uh, we're going, we're digging into chapter one, the commodity. Now, I know we talked about doing the entire chapter of the commodity and I really did want to, but as I was reading through it, I realized that there's just way too much. Um, Obviously, you know the commodity is this huge object for Marx. Uh, It's a huge object for us now. Um, We we talk about commodities a lot in our uh, analysis of of capitalism. In any sort of like reading of contemporary of the contemporary world, the commodity or commodity culture is an important concept. Um, So I guess it should come as no surprise that this first chapter is remarkably dense. Uh, It felt like it would be a um, how to say this like it felt like it would be a bad idea to, um, give the fetish, the commodity fetish and the money form and all of Marx's math short shrift. Cause Marx's math, actually, like if you follow along with it, it's actually quite interesting. So, um, I think that's what we'll do next week. Uh, we'll go into the commodity fetish and also the money form a little more this week. We're going to be talking about the functions, factors of the commodity, e.g. use value and value or exchange value. And um, we are also going to be talking about, um, uh, trying to find the actual name of the section, excuse me, the dual character of labor embodied in commodities. So we're going to get into it and you'll be surprised how much is here. Uh, this is the first two sections. It's about 20 pages or so. And then we'll read the fetish, uh, commodity fetish and the rest of it, uh, next week. Um, that'll also be a big episode as we get through it. When we get to like the working day chapter, for instance, you we might read whole 80-page sections in one week. These first chapters are just massively, massively dense. Uh, just, you know, some of the densest stuff you can possibly uh, get in Capital. So starting off with chapter one, a couple of things to, to point out initially. Uh, the first thing is I'm glad we did the Hegelian stuff on appearance. Uh, because, of course, appearance, as we talked about, like... Um, chairness can only really be given by way of uh, the chair's relationship with something else, uh, e.g., you know, some sort of observer of the chair or some sort of like uh, social understanding of what a chair is, right? Um, This social quality comes up again and again and again and again in the commodity section, and you're going to see it come up again and again and again and again, particularly as concerns value or what Marx will call the form of appearance of value, which is exchange value. Because of the first episode, we know what form of appearance is, right? It's uh, basically if you know if there's an essence to value, or if value is a thing, like if it is uh, if it exists, the isness of value, um, then the way it appears in the world, the way we encounter it, is by way of its form of appearance, which is exchange value. Um, That'll become important and it'll become clearer later on. But it's very important that we did that. And uh, the Hegelian concept of appearance is going to come up again and again and again. Um, You know, as a side note, I'm grateful for the podcast because I had never thought to connect those two things as um, uh, exclusively or as, uh, um, I don't know, as clearly as that. Um, And it really helped me understand this first chapter a lot better. The other thing that I find super fascinating reading this through for the second time, um, actually probably like the third or fourth time now, but um, is... How paratactical Marx is now. Parataxis is basically this rhetorical device um, where you essentially repeat your thesis again and again and again. Most famously, or most infamously, these days um, is uh, Theodor Adorno's aesthetic theory, which is paratactical. Um, you can read the first twenty pages. You can read the whole book. You're going to get the same thing again and again. Um, however, parataxis is really tricky because, of course, if your thesis is simple enough that you're just repeating yourself, that's going to be really boring. So Parataxis is this, uh, balance between, um, presenting new material and also kind of foreshadowing or, um, uh, imminently including the, uh, the material that you will get to in the early work before it's been kind of laid out. Um, give you an example, uh, just to start off and then we'll, we'll go to the beginning of the chapter and I have a, a lot of notes that we need to get through. Um, on one twenty nine, this is again, the, um, penguin edition. I believe it's still the, the standard edition. Um, the one I have, uh, but it's, uh, I forgot to tell you the edition. I believe it is, uh, yeah, it's a reprint from 1990. So I don't think they've changed the pagination, but it's the Ben Fowkes translation. Um, but if you're on marxist.org, it's, uh, just under, um, uh, section one, uh, but towards the end of section one, um, the, uh, of the commodity section. Um, so, Marx is talking about paratax- or Marx is talking paratactically. Excuse me, on this page, and uh, mainly by the way he uses technology, right? So he's he's bringing up this concept of socially necessary labor time, which we'll get into. Um, but in bringing up socially necessary labor time, he says um, it might seem that if the value of a commodity is determined by the quantity of labor expended to produce it, it would be the more valuable the more unskillful and lazy the worker who produced it, because the unskilled or lazy worker would need more time to complete the article. It's kind of a natural thought if you imagine that labor hours are worth all the same. However, the labor that forms the substance of value is equal human labor, the expenditure of identical human labor power. Um, and he goes on and on and basically defines uh, labor as the sort of like average across the board. So um, we'll describe why this is the case, but you can imagine like if I produce a widget and you produce a widget and you produce a widget super quickly and I produce a widget super slowly, Uh, the widgets are going to cost the same. So we average out the time effectively. Like the time is just what it should take to finish the widget. I'm slow, you're fast. We kind of meet in the middle. Um, But Marx goes on to sort of explain why people might be fast or slow with creating widgets. Um, In fact, he doesn't uh, ascribe laziness to the worker very often. And I think this is purely rhetorical uh, because at the bottom he says, you know, socially necessary labor time is the labor time required to produce any use value under the conditions of production normal for a given society and with the average degree and skill of intensity of labor prevalent in that society. Which is to say, it's an average, right? Like socially necessary labor time is on average in any given society at any given time. Here's what it would take to produce a thing, right? Um, Then he goes on to say, the introduction of power looms into England, for example, probably reduced by one half the labor required to convert a given quantity of yarn into woven fabric. In order to do this, the English hand loom weaver, in fact, needed the same amount of labor time as before, but the product of his individual hour of labor now only represented half an hour of social labor and consequently fell to one half of its normal value. Now, what you're probably thinking at this point, if you're following along, uh, well, you might be thinking that's really confusing. And so like the, the translation there is once you introduce the power loom into the picture, you, uh, make it so that say making a coat or making a sheet, uh, well, not a coat, I guess, but making a sheet of linen, let's say, um, takes half as much time as it did before when you didn't have a power loom. So all of a sudden, um, your hour of labor is in fact cut in half in terms of its value. Cause now you can produce two sheets in the same time it would take you to produce one. And so the socially, um, or the socially necessary labor time, that average of labor time, um, ticks, uh, Ticks towards more efficient, right? And so this is why capitalism is obsessed with efficiency. If you can make socially necessary labor time go more and more and more to the um, the smaller, basically make it smaller, Um, you can make work cheaper uh, by by and by. Why, you know, as a capitalist, think as a capitalist in this case. If you were a capitalist, you'd want five sheets of linen for the same price as you'd want one. Uh, So the power loom is a good deal for you. But you're probably wondering now that I've explained it, what Happens to the worker? Why does the worker uh, have to give away their labor for for less money? They're doing the same stuff, um, and the answer kind of comes up. Well, the answer is obvious. The answer is because, well, it's capitalism, and the the worker is not the one who's getting the profits. But um, not so glibly. Let's let's follow along with Marx. The 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 technology chapter later on will explain this. But the technology chapter is like four hundred pages into this book, and right here on page like the sixth page in, Marx effectively lays out his argument for why, for how technology, um, modifies the value of labor, um, what he will then call like, um, well, relative value of labor, um, and, uh, dead labor embodied in technology. And he'll explain that later on. And it's this very complicated theory, but it exists in this first bit. And so what's fascinating about Marx is that as you read through, you'll find repetitions, and and revisions but it's not as if he's going through this blindly uh this is a very very carefully constructed piece even though it's like a thousand pages long usually thousand page long monographs are not carefully constructed but this one is okay so with that said let's start at the beginning um i have some notes so if you hear me clicking around i apologize um so at the beginning of the paper beginning of the piece we talked about how the individual commodity appears as this elementary form um, and we talked about what that appearance might be. It appears as its elementary form within society. It, its essence may not be that elementary form, as we will find out it is not, but it appears that way, right? And then in in his first footnote, um, under, uh, I'm sorry, his third footnote, not his first, um, when he talks about, uh, let's see where the footnote is, it's the discovery of these ways. Uh, so every useful thing um, Going back a little bit, I'm sorry. There's so much in here that I'm going to end up tripping over myself a little bit, so please bear with me. Um, every useful thing he says in the very uh, like the third paragraph of the chapter, uh, for example, iron paper paper etc. may be looked at from the two points of view of quality and quantity. Every useful thing is a whole composed of many properties. It can therefore be useful in various ways. The discovery of these ways and hence the manifold uses of things is the work of history. So, what he's saying here is that history is the is the you know the the path of history is basically our discovering how to use things in the world and 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 buy things and make things and produce things and use them to kill each other or to build buildings or to grow crops or whatever right like it it's kind of a dispassionate way to understand uh, humanity but it's not totally inaccurate. Um, but then down in the footnote um, he writes things have intrinsic value and he says this is barbon who he cites a lot in this section, his special term for use value, uh, and this is still Barbon's quote, which in all places have the same virtue as the lodestone to attract iron. So he's saying like the things have anything in the world, a commodity, uh, Barbone doesn't use that term, but Marx would, has an intrinsic value, says Barbone. Um, and everywhere it has that same value. This is like a central tenet of capitalism, right? things have value. They, they, they embody value. That's why stealing's wrong, right? Like, why stealing could be morally wrong is because things have value and you shouldn't take valuable, valuable things without paying for them. Why is the thing valuable? Because it's a thing. It's a tautology, but it's a tautology that completely determines our entire society. Um, but Marx adds, the magnet's property of attracting iron only became useful once it had led to the discovery of magnetic polarity. And we see in that this problem of intrinsic value, right? The intrinsic property of magnetism only becomes useful or even relevant once it actually can lead to the production of things. The value of things only becomes relevant when it leads to, when at the discovery of the market. So if magnetism is to the lodestone, then exchangeability in the market is to the commodity and so marx is already hinting at this rejection of value as like a thing you you know on the next page he says in in paragraph four i'm sorry in footnote four um the natural worth of anything he's quoting john locke uh consists in its fitness to supply the necessities or serve the conveniences of human life um in english uh writers of the 17th century, we still often find the word worth. This is his language. This is Marx now used for use value and value for exchange value. This is quite in accordance with the spirit of a language that likes to use a Teutonic word that is worth, um, for the actual thing and a Romance word that is value for its reflection. So again, actual and reflection, uh, that is to say actual and ideological presentation. Um, He's again digging into his Hegelianism, but he's also showing what we will see again and again in his cattiness, right? Like, oh, leave it to the English to use a Roman word for its actual thing and a romantic word for its appearance. Um, this is Marx just being caddy. He's like a super catty writer. And it's funny. Like, you should laugh. Like, there are moments in here where you will laugh um, if you read the book along. He is a funny guy. Um, but understand these, these footnotes are super important in understanding where he's going. If you read it without the footnotes, it might seem like he's bumbling along or otherwise sort of naive about capitalism, kind of going from a Cartesian, you know, cogito ergo sum, kind of, you know, starting place. However, um, this is really, really worked out. He knows what he's arguing at the very first page. It's not a, it's not an honest discursus and uh, breaking up of capital, even if it is an intellectually honest one. Okay, so If all commodities, as Mark says, are basically like, let's lump them in together, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to debate, he essentially says, which is more valuable, iron or corn. Let's just think about these as commodities, right? They all have their own values. And, you know, just like the metric system or whatever. you know, just like a gram of something uh, has a, uh, a standard weight and like X amount of grams equals uh, Z amount of pounds or whatever, however you want to understand it, you can convert the uh, the various commodities. So Mark says at some point or another, all of these commodities in various uh, ratios are going to be worth the same thing. It's a kind of like a conversion system. Um, however, what is a commodity, Mark says? Mark says there's two parts to it. Right? Two things make up a commodity. The first thing is the usefulness of a thing, which is its use value. Um, so use value, it says, it doesn't, he says it doesn't dangle in mid-air. It's conditioned by the physical properties of the commodity and has no existence apart from the latter. It's the physical body of the commodity itself. For instance, iron, corn, a diamond, which is the use value or useful thing. This property of a commodity is independent of the amount of labor required to appropriate its useful qualities. When examining use values, we always assume we are dealing with definite quantities, such as dozens of watches, yards of linen, or tons of iron. The use value of commodities provide the material for a special branch of knowledge, namely the commercial knowledge of commodities. Use values are only realized in use or in consumption. They constitute the material content of wealth, whatever its social form may be. In the form of society to be considered here, they are also the material bearers, trager, and tragger comes up again, of exchange value. So... What we, what can we understand about use value? Three things. First, it is the physical body of the commodity. It has, it it absolutely must exist with the commodity. You can't have use value hypothetically. Um, if I order a shovel from Amazon, um, when the shovel gets here, I have the use value of the shovel until it does get here. I don't have the use value of the shovel. It's purely hypothetical at that point. So it's material. Number two, It doesn't have anything to do with the amount or kind of labor that's put into it. And this becomes a lot clearer when we get to the commodity fetish. So keep this in mind. If I have a shoe in front of me and another shoe in front of me and one took an artisan 800 hours to make and one took a, a factory worker five minutes to make... They both are usable as shoes in the exact same way. Now, they could be different shoes or whatever, but imagine they're roughly similar and just the the length of time taken is, is what counts. The use value suffers not at all uh, with the less time it, you know one uses in putting it together. Maybe it falls apart quicker, but that just means you buy another shoe. The use is still there. So the use has nothing to do with the amount or quality of labor. And then three, use value is realized in consumption, when you consume or use a commodity, and it is the material quality of wealth and the material bearer of exchange value. So the consumption of commodities is how we understand uh, that materiality embodied in that consumption is how we can understand exchange value, which is a much more ghostly figure, as we will see. Now, exchange value, he explains at the bottom of this page, appears first of all as the quantitative relation, the proportion in which use values of one kind exchange for use values of another kind makes sense, right? The exchange value uh, is effectively like what can you sell the thing for, or what can you buy it for, right? Um, this relation changes constantly with time and place. Now, this is true. Um, you know, this is like the the, the framework of uh, what what could you buy for a nickel in 1922 versus today. Um, you know, the the. Popcorn and a hot dog that you'd buy for a nickel, right, Uh, in 1922 has a much different exchange value today than it did then. Just makes sense. This is inflation. This is supply and demand. This is all the basic econ 101 stuff that everyone uses to kind of get mad at Marx, but he accounts for it. Exchange value changes based on time and place. Absolutely. Okay. The proportion in which use values of, I'm sorry, um, Hence, exchange value appears to be something accidental and purely relative, and consequently, an intrinsic value, i.e. an exchange value that is inseparably connected with the commodity inherent in it, seems a contradiction in terms. And as we'll find out, it is. Like, it's totally a contradiction in terms, except if we understand it as embodying a kind of labor or failing the labor theory of value as embodying a certain set of productive qualities that are required and 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 um, and uh, rely upon exploitation. Uh, so yeah, I mean, he sort of sets this up. Um, it seems like an inherent uh, exchange value would be, you know, totally crazy. Like a, a shovel doesn't immediately cost something in the way that we would understand the magnet having some sort of obvious, or I'm sorry, the iron having a magnet uh, a magnetic, uh, property, uh, the shovel does not have a price property, Mark says. And then he adds, you know, but let's think about it a little bit. Um, and so he goes through and he says like, okay, you can exchange things, right? You can exchange, uh, X amount of boot polish for Y amount of silk or Z amount of gold. Um, and maybe each represents the exchange value of one quarter of wheat. Uh, so if you have that one quarter of wheat standing in as a variable, uh, you know, they can be mutually replaceable and uh, and in identical magnitude. So if I find out what amount of wheat, iron, and gold is worth one sheet of linen, I can exchange those wheat, iron, and gold. I can say like, well, I can buy one sheet of linen with these. So I could obviously buy, um, you know, if, if X and Y are gold and uh, linen, certain properties of them, and Z is an amount of grain that is equal to both, then X can also equal Y right? That's the transitive property in math. Um, now he says it follows from this kind of admittedly sloppy math that firstly, the, value, the valid exchange values of a particular commodity express something equal, ostensibly yes, right? In the marketplace, we imagine we are getting equal value, or that is at least the idea. There, We zero out our value and provide some sort of equitable exchange. And secondly, Exchange value cannot be anything other than the mode of expression, the form of appearance, remember form of appearance, of a content distinguishable from it. So that exchange value is how we understand use value appearing in the world, right? Um, the, the sort of like general value of a thing that comes up in terms of like use value and exchange value, this mixture of the two, this dialectical relationship between the two Um Exchange value is how we understand it. Exchange value is that social, um, that socially active. Um, you know, I observe this and you observe the same thing. That appearance is the price, effectively, and exchange value is nothing more than price. Um, well, that's not strictly true, true, but for the moment, why not? Um, And so like, of course, like uh, he says, let's take commodities, for example, corn and iron, whatever their exchange relation may be, it can always be represented by an equation in which given a given quantity of corn is equated to some quantity of iron. For instance, one quarter of corn equals X uh, CWT of iron. What does this uh, equation signify? It signifies that a common element of identical magnitude exists in two common things. Both are therefore equal to a third thing, which in itself is neither the one nor the other, which... We will find out later is money. Each of them, so far as it is in exchange value, must therefore be reducible to this third thing. Okay. Now, on one twenty-eight, he hints strongly at the uh, the, at the money form, uh, which we will discuss next week. Um, he says, uh, "Use values, commo- as use values, commodity differ commodities. Excuse me, differ above all in quality. Right? So I can have a good shovel or a bad shovel." While as exchange values, they can only in quantity and therefore do not contain an atom of use value. So what kind of thing can we have in the market that contains not an atom of use value, but can speak to the use value of commodities? It's actually a kind of a thorny problem. And as we'll see, money, this third form that stands in without use value, but with pure exchange value, and of course, whose use value is exchange it's again a, a tautology you'll find a lot of these in capital um that's gonna be the thing that that squares the circle but for now it's a very complicated problem it's this like it's this issue where it's like okay um, how do we figure out what to buy commodities with well first mark says we have to disregard the use value of commodities why not um, and if we disregard the use value of commodities if we know that that's not where their value comes from uh, then um, all of a sudden we come to yet another, kind of separate, but very important. And, uh, as we'll find out foundational observation that, um, the, uh, the value of commodities comes from the fact that they're products of labor. Now, what you'll, what you'll hear a lot about in terms of uh, contemporary Marxism is that the labor theory of value, which is what m- we'll, we'll see kind of more laid out later on, Marx d- uh, uses to describe his work uh, and to describe his equations explaining capital, a lot of people will tell you that that's bunk or like doesn't work. And it's true. Like the labor theory of value is not by any means a perfect theory. Um, that said, the idea of commodities having their value by way of their production. Not that it's not valuable because it's a shovel. It's not valuable because um, you know, it's a pair of shoes. It's valuable because it was produced for you and is a shovel and a pair of shoes. The actual use of the thing itself. Then this goes back to what you would say about capitalists uh, or good capitalists. Good capitalists wouldn't care if you use the shovel as a shovel or as a hat. Right? Uh, it doesn't matter if you use the um, sort of like body example would be the um, the handheld uh, massager market, right? It doesn't actually matter if the handheld massager is a handheld massager or a quote unquote handheld massager. It frankly just matters that you have purchased the handheld massager. The capitalist does not care uh, one way or the other. The use value has nothing to do, therefore, with the exchange value of the thing. The exchange value of the thing is premised on, and in fact, the entire value of the thing is premised on, it's being produced for you by someone else. So that's human labor in the abstract, Marx says. Now, he moves on to 129 after making this observation, and you know, we could go through again and again, but I will be here, we've already done a half hour, so I want to keep moving. Um, Now, again, we have the parataxis here, like I said, the fetish comes up even before it's defined, uh, or defined, excuse me, um and i just want to say before we move on to this to uh, socially necessary labor time which we're almost there keep in mind again this form of appearance issue this section on value really doesn't make a lot of sense it's hard to make sense of generally but it doesn't make a lot of sense until you understand that appearance which is to say the form of appearance of value that marx talks about a lot this idea of value appearing in the world somehow it is so important that we understand that this is a social thing, right? You could say that objects have value in some like abstract sense. Many people do. Many people say like, oh, you know, my computer has value. Um, And, you know, probably uh, it has some sort of use value and I'm using it right now. And on the market, it has a kind of exchange value, sure. Um, But the form of appearance, the necessary thing that we need to understand and quantify that value in the world, in the marketplace, in a social system, is price, is cost, is exchange value. So we actually need that to understand why exchange value and value and all of these things that Marx is kind of puzzling through uh, mean anything. You know, why does he care where exchange value comes from? Why does he care if it's about use value or about labor power? He cares because the appearance of the thing is in many ways more important than the thing itself. The fact that the widget is sold in the marketplace, way more important than the the widget itself to Marx. Marx could care less about shovels. He's not writing capital to get shovels uh, reformed. He's writing capital because he has problems with the way that labor is exchanged and exploited. Now, furthermore, money effectively becomes an exchange value because it is a socially determined thing, right? It's the perfect exchange value commodity because We decided as money. Someone just says, or we decided as value, excuse me. Someone says gold's rare, so it can can hold value. This is the same thing with Bitcoin. It's the same thing with anything anyone tells you imminently has value. It It doesn't imminently have value. It may imminently have use value, but as we've just learned from Marx, the use value of gold, say it acts as a transistor, has nothing, 100% nothing to do with its exchange value. In fact, its exchange value... Really has nothing to do, and he goes on to talk about like diamond mines later, has nothing to do with like the, the actual uh, labor it takes to get out. Um, unlike, say, the socially acceptable labor time that it takes to do a shoe, gold mining has nothing to do with it. It can be more or less. Uh, that's why gold mining is so appealing. There's a lot of luck in there. You can get lucky. You can strike it rich. Um, and then you have a bunch of stuff that society, uh, because they need a form of appearance for value, has said it's worth this much. You can buy things with it, right? Um, value has no essence that's quantifiable. There's no essence of valuable uh, value that we can say, here is the value of the thing and I have presented it uh, in the Hegelian sense. Value only has appearance. And that's the whole point of the section. The whole point of the use value exchange value section is to get to this claim that, yeah, look, Things have use value. Commodities have these usable values. Like I can use a shovel in a particular way. But why does it need to have exchange value? It needs to have exchange value because unless we just care about the thing itself, unless we just care about use value, in which case its form of appearance is its shovelness. Is is it like a shovel or not like a shovel? Um, We don't care about that. We know what a shovel looks like and we know where to get it. We're not making the shovel. It has nothing to do with our production of it. The form of appearance is its value, what I pay for it. And that imminence only comes through in terms of price, exchange value, money, however you want to think about it. Okay. So moving on to 129, we get to this idea of average productivity, right? He says a use value or useful useful article has value only because abstract human labor is objectified or materialized in it. That's what we've discovered on the previous page, right? That's our understanding of exchange value, that value, um is actually in there, and he has actually taken exchange out of it at this point. He's just referring to it as value. Think of this as like the essence, right? The the, the pure imminent value. Um, Marx gets away from this pretty quickly because it's obviously not imminently valuable. It has an appearance of value. It is a form of appearance of value, but at this point, value. It's valuable because people made it. It has objectified labor in it. Okay, so how do we tell how much labor We need to charge, or how much labor should a a given commodity be? Because it's not practical to say this shovel took eight hours to build and this shovel took four hours to build. So the first shovel is uh, more expensive than the second shovel, but they're exactly the same. It's, I mean, maybe in a bartering market, maybe if like, you know, in like the gig economy, we're sort of getting to the point where that's the case and all the better for capital. But in a classical market, um, this comparison of, um, commodities, it just doesn't work. You can't have two shovels on the shelf that look exactly the same. And they each be, they each are different prices because they took different times to make. So we average out the time, right? This is average, um, productivity in general. We say, okay, on average, a worker works this amount, uh, of hours in the day and produces this amount of shovels. Um, and so when you can do that, when you can produce that amount of shovels, it produces like a, uh, as Marx calls it, a homogeneous mass of human labor power, and that homogeneous mass of human labor power, understood as a melange, or as he go, as he says uh, illustratively, a congealing of human labor, um, produces socially necessary labor time. This time that we understand to be necessary to make um, a shovel. So, a shovel takes, on average, we say silently but loudly in this case. Three labor hours to make. Well then it will cost three labor hours. The cost of three labor hours. Now we'll see why that's not the case. Where does where does the where does the capitalist get money then? Well, that's a fair question. Um now on 130, we get to one of the most interesting things in Marx. Um I find this fascinating and I think it's it's not talked about enough. It's it's definitely one of the places where Places where I think Marx needs revision, but I think Marx brings up something fascinating anyway. Um, Marx needs revision here in terms of eco-criticism and also in terms of um, uh, post-colonialism, third worldism, decolonialization, um, Marx Marxism, Marxists of color, uh, you know, Marxists of the global south. However you want to put it, because he talks about these things in nature as natural inputs and I, I call them natural inputs but okay let me let me just actually do the reading here because this is going to be a little a little hard to, to pin down so this is towards the end of the first section the value of a commodity would therefore remain consistent if the labor time required for its production also remained constant but the latter changes with every variation of the productivity of labor. Um, as we said before, the power loom is a good example of this. This is determined by a wide range of circumstances. It is determined amongst other things by the worker's average degree of skill, the level of development of science and its technological application, the social organization of the process of production, the extent and effectiveness of the means of production and the conditions found in the natural environment. All of that stuff we will talk about in later chapters. Now the conditions found in the natural environment are fascinating. For example. The same quality, uh, quantity of labor, Mark says, is present in eight bushels of corn in favorable seasons and only four bushels in unfavorable seasons. Totally, right? I grow 800 bushels of corn and I'm only expecting to grow 600. Guess who's gonna be selling corn on the cheap? It's it me, I don't want it to, I don't really want it to spoil. Or if I'm a contemporary capitalist, I will throw out 200 of those, of those bushels because the waste actually is less productive because I would rather sell these 600 bushels at um, average cost, And so now you're starting to see why waste is actually quite profitable for companies. Um, The same quantity of labor provides more metal in rich mines than in poor. Diamonds are a very rare occurrence on the earth's surface and hence their discovery costs on an average, a great deal of labor time. Consequently, much labor is represented in a small value volume. Um, Jacob, and he's talking about William Jacob questions whether gold has ever been paid for at its full value. This applies still more to diamonds. According to Esfegh, The total produce of the Brazilian diamond mines for the 80 years ending in 1823 still did not amount to the price of one and a half years average produce of the sugar and coffee plantations of the same country. Although the diamonds represented more labor, therefore more value. And so there's this, there's this weird thing he's glossed over here, which is that natural inputs are just luck. Like you got a river running into your factory that can make you work better because it uh, faster because it moves your uh, water wheel. Great. You got super lucky. Did you find a nice mine? great you got super lucky did your corn grow well this season cool you got real lucky um, throw away that excess if you don't want to uh, you know pay the same amount these kind of strokes of luck are not about the market they're about nature now however we understand two things we understand that capitalism actually does impact the natural space and we understand that the people mining the diamonds and doing the sugar Uh, Their socially necessary labor time is radically different because they were most likely slaves or deeply, deeply underpaid and are still deeply, deeply underpaid. The maquiladoras in Mexico and Ciudad Juarez um, absolutely uh, bring down the price of clothes because they bring down the socially necessary uh, labor cost, right? Um, Average labor time and average labor cost dramatically plunge when you can use, say, the Global South to um, bolster artificially low costs in the global north, Marx doesn't have a good conception of this, and I don't. I don't. I tend not to think that it's malicious. I tend to think that it is just a blind spot for him. However, it's certainly a spot that needs revision because this this analysis is without any sort of knowledge of the eco-critical um, scarcity in, in ecology, and of course, uh, any sort of sense of imperialism or colonialism. It doesn't show up here, and it should all right, moving on. So, um, on 131, he kind of gets to this interesting aporia. Uh, and then we'll take a small break at the end of 131 and I will go, um, make a pie and explain to you why that's important afterwards. Um, well, it's actually not important to you. It's my dinner, but I'll explain why it's relevant afterwards. Um, so towards the end of, one thir- of the first section, he says the value of a commodity varies directly as the quantity and inversely as the productivity of the labor, which finds its realization within the commodity. Okay. Right. The productivity of the labor. We know this. We know that this is basically how we understand commodities to have value, not their use value, but the labor used to produce them. Fine. Now we know the substance of value. It says it is labor. We know the measure of its magnitude. It's labor time. The form which stamps value as exchange value remains to be analyzed. But before we this, we need to develop the characteristics we have already found somewhat more fully. Great. That means money. That means we have to figure this out. There's like we're almost at the end of the equation. This book's going to be 30 pages long. Um, (laughs) uh, And of course, he adds, the thing can be a use value without being a a value. This is the case wherever it is utility to man is not mediated through labor. Air, virgin soil, natural meadows, unplanted forests, etc. fall into labor without being a commodity. Again, natural inputs. He who satisfies his own need with the product of his own labor admittedly creates use values, but not commodities. And that may be true. However, we now know that scarcity means these, these are commodities. They are always already commodities. They are valuable from a monetary perspective. And that is why conquest and imperialism is so profitable. I think it'd be useful. And I'm sorry. Uh, he who satisfies his own need with the product of his own labor admittedly creates use values, but not commodities in order to produce the latter, that is commodities. He must not only produce use values, but use values for others, social use values, the appearance. And then, uh, angles chimes in and says like, Hey, not just for others. Um, you know, the, the, we didn't have commodities in feudalism because, uh, you know, even though we made stuff for our feudal Lord and the priest, Um, The product has to be transferred to the other person for whom it serves as a use value through the medium of exchange. It's actually a fairly useful note by Engels. I am of two minds about Engels notes, but that one's a good one. Finally, Marx adds, nothing could be a value without being an object of utility. If the thing is useless, so is the labor contained in it. The labor does not count as labor and therefore creates no value. However, and this is what I want you to think about before we get to the, the... issue or the, the break before we get to the second section. Um, usefulness is not obvious. It's not obvious what usefulness counts as. And in a certain way, I think Marx knows this. And in a certain way, I don't think he, he can. Um, the kind of usefulness say of this podcast Marx can't imagine this, right? You would have to go to a school, right? Or something like that. And the usefulness of education is also social usefulness. It's a a kind of uh, a form of appearance, let's say of qualification, right? A degree is a form of appearance of qualification. I can show you my PhD and say, I have a PhD. Uh, Does that explain the value of it? Well, absolutely not. Um, And in fact, there's no way to quantify the value of it, but it is the form of appearance of quantity of value. But a thing has to have some kind of use. And there's always some sort of use that is imminent in commodities. So, how do we figure out this use? How do we tie the use to the uh, exchange? We've kind of laid it out in this first section, but not totally. Now, I also want to indicate uh, that there's a bit of a of an understanding of that uh, that nib cartoon by Matt Bores, where um, the the peasants in the in the keeps is like talking about like using his his. Uh, his hoe. And then like uh, a guy pops out and he says like, whoa, using tools, part of capitalism. Um, And that, that classic turning point uh, USA meme where they're like, yeah, communists, why are you using so many cell phones? Um, We just need appearance as a social agreement, right? Once we get to what what we're talking about in the social division of labor, we'll, we'll start to understand that in fact, like this appearance of value, this appearance that like iPhones cost something or like capitalism made iPhones and like they're valuable and we're participating in the market or whatever. All of that is a form of appearance. It is a social contract that we are forced under because we live under capitalism. Um, it doesn't mean we approve of it. It truly means that it just is the case. It's, it's, it's the form of appearance of our world. Um, that's how we can understand value. Um, And that is, in many ways, the total subsumption of uh, people under capital. Uh, Now we're going to take a quick break, and I'll come back with uh, a shorter section on the second bit of uh, social division of labor.
1: It might have been Camelot for Jack and Jacqueline. But on the Che a highway Filling up with gasoline Fidel Castro's brother spies A rich lady who's crying Over luxuries' disappointment So he walks over And he's trying to sympathize with her But he thinks that he should warn her That the third world is just around the corner
0: And we're back Um, so we're digging into the second section and I told you that I'm making a pie, right? Um, now my pie is a good pie. It tastes very good. It's a, it's a sausage, apple and sage pie. My wife requested it. It's a hit for the family. Uh, it's a great pie. It took me forever to make this pie. It's hard to make a savory pie. It takes an, a lifetime. And there is a clear reason why most pie shops will make, I don't know, 10 at a time. Uh, it would take about the same five hours to make 10 pies as it would to make one. Cause it's just a bunch of waiting around and putting stuff together. What that means is that because I only have the means to make one pie, my pie might cost $40 or like $30 or something like that. Whereas who's your mama, the great Chicago pie shop that I took the recipe from, uh, charges 18, right? Buy their pie instead. Cause of course, like, it's not just, they're not undercutting me. They've simply learned to produce it on a massive scale. And so the actual appearance of value there or, or um, a form of appearance of value is different because the labor going into it is different. This is a good example of productivity and socially necessary labor time. I've taken way more than the socially necessary labor time necessary for my pie. Now, would this matter if uh, none of it cost money and I was just making it for my family and it was what I had taken from the land that was around my house or from some sort of like socialist commune? No, not at all. It would just be different pies. Um, It matters because, as we said before, exchange value is the form of appearance of all value in a capitalist society. Okay, so moving on. On 132, we get the first response to Adam Smith, and I think responses to Smith are really interesting in Marx. Um, He doesn't explicitly call out Smith here, um, but he says that uh, he was the first to point out and critically examine the twofold nature of labor contained in commodities, which is to say, it labor finds its expression in value, but it no longer expresses, it possesses the same characteristics as when it is the creator of use values. As I just said, me making a pie to make for my family is one thing. If I was making this pie to sell, it would be quite another. So he goes on to talk about labor from here. And this is because Adam Smith, and we find this out later uh, in, a, in a footnote, um, Smith writes that, the um and i'm trying to find the footnote okay yeah it's on 137 it's just at the end of this section smith says equal quantities of labor at all times and places must have the same value for the laborer in his ordinary state of health strength and activity in the ordinary degree of his skill and dexterity he must always lay down the same portion of his ease his liberty and his happiness he's not wrong about labor like labor is basically you trade your time for you know being paid to live in the society he's wrong in the way it's valued though and Marx notes that, yeah, it's actually not valued based on use. It's totally valued based on exchange. What can you get? What can the person selling your labor, your materialized labor, what can they get for it? That's going to be partly what determines what your labor is worth. Now, that's a pessimistic thing that Adam Smith didn't quite get to, but an important, important corrective on Smith. And understand it's a corrective. Marx is not angry at Smith here. Marx thinks Smith missed something. Anyone in the Adam Smith Institute who wants to tell you that like Marx is some sort of weird radical, I understand like Marx is following in the tradition of Smith and simply correcting him. This is just, this is Adam Smith, but taken to the actual destination that it should be. Okay. So on 133, we see this instance where there's a weird moment where Marx says coats can't be exchanged for coats. Um, obviously in our current moment, we know that they can, it, you would have to sell many, co- many of your other, you can have like a rare coat or a, a warm coat or whatever. But his point is that, um, use value can't be exchanged for use value. It always has to be exchanged for that form of appearance of value. EG money coats aren't the form of appearance of value. They're the form of appearance of coats. If that makes sense. That's again, kind of a weird thing to say, and maybe something that you never thought would make any sense to you, but I'm imagining it makes some sense to you right now. Cause it's starting to make some sense to me. Um, On 133, he's talking a little bit more about labor. Um, And in fact, like he gives this instance of where labor is uh, actually totally normal within everyday life in in a socialist or communist world. And there's very little in this about what communism would look like. Let me tell you, it's not a um, predictive text that way. This, however, strikes me. Um, he's talking about the social division of labor, which is a capitalist thing. And he says, in a society of commodity producers, the qualitative difference between the useful forms of labor, which are carried on independently and privately by individual producers, develops into a complex system, a social division of labor. This is crucially important. There is a division of labor, and that division determines who is paid for what. So doctors, you know, health uh, surgery is one version of labor. Making pies is another version of labor. Um You know, caring for the old is another version of labor. Teaching is another version of labor. Making uh, steel beams, et cetera, cetera, it goes on forever. But they're all divided into different classes of what you can expect to be paid for them. Um, And so in that way, they are made uh, uh, sort of like consistent in their, I don't know how to say it. Like they're consistent in their... um, production in the way that we would want to see in, say, a metric system, but only in their own bounds. You can compare steelworkers to steelworkers. You can't compare doctors to steelworkers, if that makes sense, um, within a social division of labor. But Marx says you actually don't need a social division of labor. Um, He says, the existence of coats of linen of every element of material wealth, not provided in advance by nature, always had to be mediated through a specific productive activity appropriate to its purpose, a productive activity that assimilated uh, particular natural materials to particular human requirements fine, like you you gotta you gotta make stuff. Um, and in fact he says, um, the relationship between coat and labor that produced it is not in itself altered when tailoring becomes a special trade, an independent branch of the social division of labor. The actual like coat and the labor itself, the making of the coat doesn't change when I say, Oh, now tailors are a new branch of, of labor. He even adds, labor is the creator of use values as useful labor is a condition of human existence which is independent in all forms of society. It is an eternal natural necessity, which mediates the metabolism between man and nature and therefore human life itself. You got to make stuff. You got to do stuff. Uh, you know, fully automated luxury space, gay communism, however you want to say it, uh, Notwithstanding, Um, we won't debate that now, but the, that notwithstanding, like in our current model, yes, you have to make stuff. Everyone has to do something. Um, and not because that's the only way they can have value, but because like, I don't know, you got to have someone to make the coats, right? Got to have someone to make the shoes. Gotta have someone to make the pies. Um, Gotta have someone to sew me up when my, you know, when my stomach gets cut. Um, And so, like, this is a really interesting moment where it it seems to me the argument that work would exist under uh, socialism is best uh, displayed, and where it's best pointed out that socialists can like things. Socialists can have iPhones. It's just that communists and socialists would prefer. That those iPhones not be produced under a social division of labor, but rather just produced. Production isn't, uh, isn't specific to capitalism. The social division of labor is specific to capitalism. And make no mistake, capitalists will tell you that production is specific to capitalism. But no, no, no. Understand that is a dodge. It is a masterful dodge, but it's a dodge. The social division of labor is the only thing endemic to capitalism. Now, nature shows up again on 134, but I feel like we've talked about that enough. Um, on 135, we get this distinction, and I want to get this under an hour, so I'm going to rush a little bit, but we've gotten the main points in. We get to this interesting distinction of complex versus simple labor power. Um, and he says, simple average labor, labor mark says, uh, varies in character in different societies and at different cultural epics, but in a particular society, it is given. So like, yeah, like it's it's uh it's he says it's a labor power possessed in the bodily organism by every man on the average um, without being developed in any special way. Again, a moment where we can see the distinctions between uh, discourses on ableism being very helpful for expanding something in capital. Right. Uh, Marx doesn't have a very um, uh, developed sense of disability. Uh, this would be a good moment for it. In any case, though, simple average labor, just what everyone can do without any special development, more complex labor counts only as intensified or rather multiplied simple labor, so that a smaller quality of cont- quantity of complex labor is considered equal to a larger quantity of simple labor. This is the social. Uh, this is like in terms of the uh, social division of labor. This would be the justification as to why people at Walmart get paid less than doctors get paid. Right? Anyone can do with the thing at Walmart. Doctors are specific. Uh, Marx is parroting capitalism here. He's not arguing for this as a thing. Um, he is arguing for it as in a phenomenon under capitalism, however. Um, experience shows that this reduction is constantly being made. A commodity may be the outcome of the most complicated labor, but through its value, it is posited as equal as the product of simple labor. Hence, it represents only a specific quantity of simple labor. The various proportions in which different kinds of labor are reduced to simple labor as their unit of measurement are established by a social process that goes on behind the backs of the producers. These proportions therefore appear to the producers to have been handed down by tradition, which is to say, of course someone who works at Walmart makes an eighth of the amount of, of a doctor. That's what it's worth, That's it's simple labor. Like, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, learn a trade, right? That is not natural, it is determined behind the backs, as Marx says, of the producers. In the interest of simplification, we shall henceforth view every form of labor power directly as simple labor power. By this, we shall simply be saving ourselves the trouble of making the reduction. He's right. Everyone views labor power in society as exponential intensifications of simple labor power. And so finally, we get back to our, our bit on Smith and uh, his argument of, um, you know, his argument about productivity. Um, we talked about the Smith thing, and I think that's, that's important that labor power actually has value, not just across the board, it has value based on what exchange value is. Simply put, there is no central value to, exchange, to labor in the same way that there is no essential value to commodities. There is a form of appearance of value, and that form of appearance is exchange value, is money, is capital. Um, he also adds, Marx says, productivity... Um, he talks about productivity, he talks about how like, uh, material wealth can correspond to a simultaneous fall in the magnitude of its value because of productivity, um, Productivity, we always mean the productivity of concrete, useful labor. In reality, this determines only the degree of effectiveness of of productive activity directed towards a given purpose within a given period of time. Useful labor becomes, therefore, a more or less abundant source of products in direct proportion as its productivity rises or falls. As against this, however, variations in productivity have no impact whatsoever on the labor itself represented in value. Read it again. Variations in productivity have no impact whatsoever on the labor itself represented in value. As productivity is an attribute of labor in its concrete, useful form, it naturally ceases to have any bearing on the labor as soon as we abstract from its useful, concrete form. If I make a shovel fast, that's great for me if I need a shovel. Doesn't matter if the company needs a shovel, that just means one more shovel for them to sell. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with my labor. The same labor, therefore, performed for the same length of time, always yields the same amount of value, independently of any variations in productivity, individual variations of productivity, but it provides different quantities of use values during equal periods of time. More if productivity rises, fewer if it falls. For this reason, the same change in productivity, which increases the fruitfulness of labor, and therefore the amount of use values produced by it, also brings about a reduction in the value of this increased total amount. Remember, I burn the extra 200 bushels of boor- corn because, oh boy, I don't want the price to go down. <laughs> right? There's more corn. People are going to want to pay less for it. Um, if it cuts down the total amount of labor time necessary to produce the use values, um, and then the converse also holds. So excuse me, that was uh, not clearly said, but if you remember the, the instance with the author of pictures for sad children, um, when she, uh, had, when she produced her books and then burned them all instead of sending them out and, and had sort of like a discussion about how this was like Marxist, in a way, she's right, uh, and and I don't know if I never watched the video, but I'm 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 more sold on her argument now because of course, I, this is absolutely what Marx is saying. You could produce things and have great productivity, and hey, like I produced all this stuff, it's fantastic. I produced, I, I I was a super hard worker and finished it up. This must be worth a lot of money. And the truth is, when you produce something at a good clip, the profit goes down. So there's this deep problem of needing efficiency to bring down the socially necessary labor time, but also needing to fight against efficiency to keep price up. And not surprising to anyone listening to this podcast, probably, the person who most suffers from that qua- from that quandary is the laborer, not the capitalist. So my final point. Appearance is so, so important here. Parataxis is useful. It helps us understand Marx. But appearance, the form of appearance has come up so much. And I'm really glad we spent the first podcast on it. Hegel gives us the reason to emphasize social elements in Marx, right? Why else would we care about society except that society gives us our grounds for understanding appearance? This also uh, tells us why we should care about commodities being related to each other. It also tells us that the money form exists purely as the form of appearance of value in exchange. The form of appearance is so crucial in these texts. It is so important to understand that, yeah, money isn't real, but money is the form of appearance, which means under capitalism, it is all too real. The form of appearance of value is value in the lack of any sort of essential value, which, as we have seen in these first two sections, does not exist. So, use value exchange value, uh, socially necessary labor time. Uh, the, um, the division of uh, social division of labor, big, big ideas. We are getting through it. However, and next time comes the math. Uh, don't worry. We won't spend too much time on that, but it is interesting. We're going to learn about the money form. We're going to learn about the commodity fetish. We're going to get through commodity next week, and we're going to get through this whole text eventually. Thanks for coming with me on this ride. Email me at no cartridge audio at gmail.com. I didn't get a chance to check them this week, but I will next week and have a segment at the end where I cover uh, emails and uh, uh, DM me uh, or or message me or whatever you want at, at Hegelbon, H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. And uh, you're listening to it, but if you have any friends who want to listen to it, send them over to the Patreon, patreon.com backslash Hegelbon, or I'm sorry, f- <laughs> slash Hegelbon. People get furious uh, when I say that. Uh, and also, you know, if, if there's... I've said in the first one the price is flexible just message me we can talk about it um i want something for all the work but also more than anything i want people to hear this uh as we've just talked about price this long you can understand uh my difficulty with it